Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Stewart, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season four, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Andrew Graham is co-founder and CEO of Borowell, one of Canada's largest financial technology companies with 2 million users. Borowell helps consumers find financial stability and make great decisions about their money. It was the first company in Canada to offer credit scores for free and offers products and recommendations across a consumer's financial journey. Borowell has won numerous awards, including being named one of the top 100 fintech companies in the world by KPMG, one of the 50 fastest growing technology companies in Canada by Deloitte, and a top 50 best workplaces in Canada two years in a row. He was named an EY Entrepreneur of the Year for Ontario in 2019. Welcome to the program, Andrew. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you. First, kind of starting off at the, the beginning of your career, one of the things I found interesting in researching your bio and that I did not know before is that you started your career uh, in the Canadian government uh, serving as an aide uh, to uh, two uh, uh, Canadian cabinet ministers. So uh, as you progressed in your career, um, you know, what is a common misconception that people have about working uh, in, in, in politics? I think a lot of people who have not been close to government or politics think can sort of lump all, all jobs together in government. And sometimes there's a tendency to think of those jobs as either, either slow or, or not, um, you know, not, not as fast moving or as exciting as, as perhaps jobs in, in a startup company, for example. And, and my experience was really the opposite. I was uh, really fortunate to work for two very talented cabinet ministers uh, early in my career. And those are extremely fast moving, fast paced jobs uh, where you have to do a lot of thinking on your feet, a lot of hard work. Uh, you're placed in a lot of situations that require um, quick judgments. And those are, those are great skills that I think have served me, have served me well. Uh, I mean, to give one quick example, I was in charge in, in both those roles of helping brief my, my boss, uh, both ministers, before question period, which is, you know, when, when Parliament's sitting, that's the period of, of time when the opposition can ask the government questions, and you don't know what the questions are going to be in, in advance. All you can do is read through the news that day, try to anticipate what questions there are, are going to come, and then get, your, get the answers that you need as quickly as possible. And those skills, which is, you know, trying to anticipate questions, doing quick research, coming up with um, you know, short to the point answers. Those are super helpful to me as a CEO every day. If I'm, if I'm doing an all hands, I still use some of those same skills that I, I was able to develop uh, early in my career in, in politics. When you're a CEO and you're doing an all hands on deck uh, town hall with you know, 100 plus employees, there's, there can be a similarity to, to question period in the sense of yeah, that ability to, to respond to questions on your, uh, on your feet. Out of interest, who are the different cabinet ministers that you worked for? I worked for Jane Stewart when she ran Human Resources Development Canada, as it was then called. And I worked for uh, Eileen Carroll, who ran uh, CEDA, the Canadian aid agency, when it was independent uh, and, and on its own. And, and both were terrific, really terrific individuals to work for who, um, who were, were great early bosses for me and gave me a lot of latitude and frankly, let me make a lot of mistakes uh, and learn from them. So I, I, I have a lot of 
uh, a lot of gratitude towards both of them. One of the topics that we've explored a little bit on this podcast is the concept of tri-sector leadership. People have experience in government, uh, nonprofits, and uh, and for-profit uh, uh, corporations. And you've worked in government. You have extensive experience as a director for several nonprofits, and, and you're the CEO of, of a for-profit uh, tech company. Um, to what extent uh, do you feel that your sort of tri-sector uh, experience uh, helps you as, as an entrepreneur? I really like the idea of tri-sector leadership and the benefits that it it can convey, um, it, it can provide. So, you know, it, for me, for example, I'm leading a company in the financial technology space, Borowell, and that's a space where there's lots of regulation. So understanding what the job of regulators is, how they might think, uh, what's going to be important to them, the dynamic between regulators and the political level. I had some exposure to all those issues in my time in government. And that's, you know, helped me for sure as, as we have those kinds of conversations and think through regulatory issues. Um, I think, you know, my, my time at working with and around nonprofits and I actually spent uh, a bit of my career working for a nonprofit um, has helped me understand, you know, the importance of, uh, what motivates people to come work for different organizations? So, you know, mission matters so much in the nonprofit sector. If you're going to work in the nonprofit sector, you may be taking lower comp than if you were working in the private sector, and at least in many cases. And you do that because you care a lot about the mission of the com- of, of the organization you're working for. At least that's sort of the typical model. And I think we've tried to carry a lot of that into our work at Borowell. We consider ourselves a very mission-driven company. We care a lot about making the world better by helping reduce the financial stresses that um, afflict many people. And I, I think we try to really emphasize that when we when we hire. So even though we're a private sector employer, we certainly uh, you know, pay very competitively and think a lot about, about comp and so forth. We also want people to choose to work for us because of the mission and because of what we're doing. And I, I think that those were lessons that I uh, and others you know, learned in the nonprofit sector. Can you speak a little bit to the mission of Borowell uh, and, and what, what initially motivated you to, to found the company? So our mission is to help uh, people find more financial stability. And really what that means is we want, we want to help people feel less stress and more confidence about achieving their financial goals. And that could be, uh, you know, it, it could be a variety of things. It could be for many, many people, how do I get on a path so that I can buy a house or a condo in a year or two? Or how do I get on a path so that I can buy a car so I can, I can you know, get my family around or get a different job? Or I'm new to Canada. How do I establish credit? I mean, there's so many different financial goals we all have. And the reality is that finances are a huge source of stress. In survey after survey, when you survey people and ask them, what are sources of stress in your life? Finances are almost invariably number one, above, even above things like family issues, above things like health issues people spend a lot of time worrying and stressing about their finances. And I'm sure many of your, uh, many people listening to this this podcast can relate, no matter how fortunate your situation might be. I I bet there isn't a person on the planet who who hasn't worried in some way about their finances from time to time. And we know those sorts of worries can have a real impact. So a leading cause of uh, marriage breakdown and relationship breakdown is to do with finances. So what we want to do is, is help people, uh, by giving them the tools and the advice uh, and the recommendations so that they, they, that they can get onto a um, more sustainable and more confident financial path 
and be able to achieve whatever goals they want to achieve. We can't wave a magic wand and make everyone rich. But what we can do is for someone who wants to understand, for example, their credit, we can provide their credit score, tell them how to improve their credit score, and at least give them the confidence to sort of take those steps to get where they want to go. Um, and so that's that's always been really central to what we do. Uh, you asked, you know, what about sort of at the founding? I mean, we were, the, the, the problem that animated me, I was coming from financial services and I was shocked by how much credit card debt Canadians uh, held. And that, by the way, that number's only gotten larger. It's about $100 billion of credit card debt in Canada. And much of that's held by people with very good credit histories, very good credit scores, who could probably, in many cases, be borrowing uh, more cheaply, paying a lower interest rate. But they choose to use credit cards because credit cards are convenient. And there's a whole host of other reasons around that as well. So how can we help people make more efficient financial decisions? And how can technology play a role? It used to be that if you were wealthy, you of course could get good advice because you'd hire advisors and you'd pay them a lot and they'd give you good advice. But for, the, for everyone else, it was very hard to get good financial advice. Well, I think technology has made it possible for us to provide good advice to everybody. Um, and that's certainly what we try to do every day at Borwell. It's such an important uh, mission. And uh, there's also a lot of studies I've read, which has been talked about the, the impact of uh, uh, financial stress on, on even uh, cognitive abilities uh, that the Andrew Yang in, in his book around universal basic income talks about, you know, if somebody uh, is paycheck to paycheck, it, it, it creates this like kind of cognitive load that actually reduces uh, someone's ability to, to function and to make uh, intelligent uh, decisions. So uh, financial health is, is something that, that is so important. Uh, and, and also that uh, financial uh, precariousness is linked to a whole, you know, increased heart disease, all these other um, health uh, kind of issues uh, as well. So uh, the mission of, of helping people uh, achieve uh, financial stability is something that, that's so important. I, I'm sure in your role, you've heard uh, many, uh, uh, you're aware of many uh, pieces of financial advice that, that, are, are, that are kind of commonly given to, to Canadians. What is one uh, common piece of financial uh, advice that you really disagree with? Well, there's so many different, different kinds of financial advice out there. I, I, think, I think one piece of advice that's often given is, um, you know, stay away from all forms of credit for as long as you can. Uh, and in some ways that's, in some situations that may be right. If, 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 you know, you, you think that you can't handle any forms of credit, maybe that makes sense, but it turns out that one of the keys to establishing a strong credit score, which, which by the way, is really essential if you want to get a mortgage and you want to, you know, access financial products like that. One aspect that's essential is having a, um, a credit history that that's what banks and other lenders look to. And so getting a, low limit credit card uh, where you're going to have, you know, where it's going to be hard to overspend because the limit's low, starts getting you into the credit system and helps building those muscles so that you can, you can responsibly use credit later on, number one, and number two, that you're now establishing a track record with, with uh, lenders and with credit bureaus and so forth. So I think, um, you know, use of credit and responsible use of credit is so important. The answer isn't to run away from it. It's to sort of say, how do I do this? How do I, how do I start doing this in a way that's going to set me up for future success? Having a credit score and, and, and uh, using credit at the beginning of, your, of one's life or, or career is something that's so important. I can speak from my own personal experiences. I lived in the U.S. and then I moved back to Canada. I had like no Canadian credit history. And then all it was so challenging uh, to, to do anything. It took years to kind of build that up. 
Um, so I have a lot of empathy for immigrants who move to Canada and then have to establish their new credit score. But also, uh, it's a testament to it's so important at, as soon as possible, I think, to begin to develop some kind of, of, uh, of credit uh, history. So uh, at Borowell, you're, uh, and I've followed kind of over the years, your company uh, has diversity, equity, inclusion as a, as a huge kind of tenant of, of your uh, culture. And I know that too through different people who've worked at, at your company. Uh, why do you believe that uh, uh, placing an emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, isn't just the, the right thing to do on a moral perspective, it's also the right thing to do from a business perspective? So I think, um, I think you're right. It, it is the right thing to do from a moral perspective. I think from a business perspective, the evidence by this point is fairly overwhelming that it provides a lot of advantages. Um, and you know, for anyone who is involved with recruiting today in tech, uh, you, you know how challenging of a recruiting environment it is. It's so hard to find um, and, and great people just because there's so many companies doing exciting things out there, out there hiring. And if you're cutting your, your, your potential labor pool in half or, you know, otherwise excluding certain groups, you know, you're just making your life harder. So, I mean, I think that's a very obvious answer. I think for those who have studied, and there's been so many studies on diversity and inclusion, as the world gets more complex and as we try to tackle more complex problems, a key aspect isn't only having smart people around the table, it's having people with diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences who can bring those to bear on a problem. So many of the challenges we deal with today at Borowell, for example, aren't only an engineering problem. It might be a problem that has engineering aspects, that has you know, UI, UX, sort of user interface aspects. Maybe it has financial aspects. You need sort of a, a, business, a, a business model to work. So you need people with all those different expertise to come together to help solve that problem. So if you don't have all those kinds of expertise around a table, I think you just lessen your odds of success. And that may be obvious when you're talking about skill sets, like we would never, you never say, well, we only are gonna hire finance people or we're only gonna hire uh, engineer, you know, software engineers to build a company. You need people with different backgrounds and different functions. I think the same is true uh, of, of different backgrounds and different life experiences. And you know, the, the, the more the more you can um, build teams with people with with different backgrounds and life experiences, I think there's huge advantage, huge advantages that come from that. What are some of the ways that you build a rec uh, diverse recruitment uh, pipeline of, of candidates? So our talent team has done a lot of work on this, and I and and there's um, you know I think lots of good examples to point to as well in, in the market. I mean, I, I think first of all, you know, monitoring, uh, you're looking at this from a numbers perspective matters a lot. So sort of saying through our hiring process across a variety of different diversity metrics, how are we doing at various steps in the funnel? I think that's a great a great place to start. I think for, you know, many of us who work in tech are very quantitative. We like numbers and being able to see how we're doing at various stages in, in the recruiting funnel matters and sort of saying, why are, is it, is this an attraction problem? Are we not, is there something wrong with our job postings or with our company's brand that makes it that, you know, for example, women don't want to apply here or is it, uh, is it lower down the funnel? We're getting plenty of, of diversity in terms of applicants, but the only people that seem to be making it through the interview are people with this very sort of hom homogenous background. Okay. Why is that? Well, what are we selecting for? Do, are we, asking for the right skills uh, in the interview process? Have we trained our interviewers well enough 
um, to understand their own biases and to um, you know create a, a bias as much of a bias-free process as we can. So I, I think I think you know being deliberate about it and tracking it and realizing that this is not going to just going to happen by accident because you're a bunch of well-meaning people. Um, I think those are all really important uh, ingredients. Kind of going uh, to another aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion. How do you uh, aim to foster an inclusive uh, workplace? Certainly, for us, we try very hard to foster um, a few different a few different values within our company. First of all, um, humility for us is an important value. The sense that I, you know, none of us know all the answers. And a related sort of piece of that is that, you know, team comes before individual, like we're all here to solve a problem and we want to put the, 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 the customer and the company first. And I, I think those are both good starting points. I think another sort of like cultural value is, you know, being very upfront and saying diversity and inclusion matters and that we, we will be a stronger company if we can um, build a, a more diverse and inclusive workplace and that takes effort. So I think those are all sort of starting points. And then I think there's also a lot of tactical things you can do um, to help with inclusion in your workplace. Uh, you know, whoever's, however you train people to run meetings, you want to make sure that there's opportunities for everyone in the room to speak, for example. And if someone's not speaking, to, to try to pull them, you know, to, to invite them into the conversation, to pull them into the conversation. So I think I think it's a combination of, of you know, having values that, 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 are aligned with inclusion and then and then putting in tactics in place to encourage it as well. Yeah, it's such a complicated uh, uh, question, but I agree. There's the two different pieces. There's both the recruitment function and then certainly the belongingness and, and kind of uh, inclusive culture uh, element uh, of it as well. One thing I've observed both through this podcast but also in meeting lots of entrepreneurs over the years is entrepreneurs can be, they're incredibly ambitious and very driven to achieve goals. And sometimes their life can become their business. And that is like the, the, the sort of sole focus of, of, of time. And there's a great book I read uh, by Clayton Christensen, who you might've had uh, as a uh, Harvard Business School um, uh, student uh, called How to Measure Your Life. And he talks about kind of this, like, you know, not just measuring through professional success or money or different things, but, but really through relationships. Uh, so can I, on this, uh, in this vein, uh, how do you measure your life and, and how, how do you try to balance the, the sort of intense pressure running a high growth venture backed company with the overall goal of just living kind of a balanced, happy uh, life? Um, I was very fortunate to have Clay as a professor of mine at HBS, and he gave a version of that, that lecture, which then became a book, How to Measure Your Life. In, I think it was the last day of class and he would do that he would do that every year and really reflect on his own life and what had made him happy. He was obviously a huge professional success, but he was he was also a person of deep faith and um, a person with very strong family ties. And it was very striking to see this sort of icon of business talk about some of the, the, the tough personal choices he's had to make along the way. And I, I think for me, if there's, you know, the, the pandemic's been been hard in many ways, but if there's if there's sort of a, a, there's been a number of silver linings. One of them has been really reflecting a lot uh, on these questions, and I've been spending a lot of time, um, you know, trying to be more mindful and, and trying to be more focused on mindfulness practice. And uh, I, I think trying to remember on a day to day basis that, you know, it's really hard to know what life's going to bring, and you know the the present day, the present moment is 
so precious and valuable. And, and I, I, I've, I've spent a lot of my life, probably too much of my life, trying to live in the future and sort of say, okay, what, what am I going to build next? Or if I can just accomplish this, then that'll be time to sort of relax and, and, and be happy. And I think, I think, you know, maybe it sounds obvious to many people, but it, it's been a lesson for me to learn to sort of say, that's not a good way to think. I mean, it's, it's great to be ambitious and to want to build something and work hard, but you've got to take pleasure in the day to day. Um, and I really try hard now to try to realize when I'm in one of those, when I'm in one of those moments. So I was, I was cooking on the weekend and uh, was hanging out with my two-year-old uh, when my other two kids, my older kids were with my wife and, you know, some song, a song came on and I picked him up and we started dancing and he was, you know, laughing away. And I just sort of paused to reflect and sort of, to sort of say, this is, you know, this is kind of as good as it gets. Like this, this is a great moment and whatever happened in the past, whatever happens in the future, I should be very thankful for this moment because, wow, what a terrific moment this is because uh, he's going to get older and, you know, who knows what's going to happen in our lives. And I'm trying to do more and more of that to sort of say, boy, it is such a privilege to be able to lead a company of 140 terrific people. And, you know, whether I've come out of a hard meeting or, or an easy meeting, I'm in a position of great, you know, great fortune and great privilege. And I should really try to enjoy this day as much as I can, because I don't, who knows if I have 10 more years of this or, or, you know, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We can never predict those sorts of things. So uh, certainly that sort of practice of being, of being thankful for what I have and trying to, as you said, nurture, nurture those important relationships has been a big takeaway for me from, from the pandemic. I love that anecdote uh, of you uh, cooking food with your, with your kid and kind of doing dancing. And I agree. It's those little joys in life that sometimes I think spark the most uh, uh, kind of enjoyment. And it's interesting that one of the goals of this podcast, which is called new wave of entrepreneurship is to try to redefine like what it means uh, to be uh, entrepreneurial and, and ultimately to, 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 to be impactful. And I think sometimes an issue that more so a couple of years ago, but still lingers uh, is the kind of Gary Vaynerchuk, like work a hundred hours a week and just like focus solely on your company and sacrifice everything for, for, for success. And I think that there's still sometimes that lingering uh, advice that a lot of young people do here and they see it on social media around just hustle all the time and all things. So I think that that story and anecdote that, that you provided is, is really important because a lot of, in particular, I'd say ambitious entrepreneurial people, they, and uh, I'd say, I reflect on this my own self, they focus so much on the future and uh, it creates this hamster wheel of never being happy because they're always just trying to, to keep up with the Joneses or, or achieve that next goal. And then Ultimately, once they achieve that goal, they're, they're not, they're never happy because they're just thinking, oh, I want to achieve the next thing. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I do want to make clear, I, I'm not sort of making an argument for like, hey, work 30 hours a week and, and sit around and spend all of your time cooking with your, your two-year-old. So this isn't an argument for not working maniacally on something you care about. I think that is really important. I think the two things for me are, first of all, try to find pleasure in the moment. You talked about sort of small joys. I sort of think that's all there is. I sort of think all there is are small joys. Um, I think we sometimes imagine that like once I hit this milestone, then I will be happy and I'll live in a state of joy. And I just don't think that's right. I think I've got I've lots of friends who have exited companies and have made you know lots of money and, and, and they still have good days and bad days and happy moments and unhappy moments. So I, I think I think we sometimes fool ourselves when we worry when we sort of think if I get to this milestone then I can be happy or then I can spend time. So I think that's number one, and number two, relationships matter a lot. So by all means, 
uh, you know, work super hard, work 80 hours a week on your company. We all have to go through those periods. But first of all, try to take time in those 80 hour days or 80 hour weeks rather to be happy and sort of say, wow, that was what a great conversation I just had with my co-founder. I'm so fortunate to work with, with someone as talented as her. Um, and then, you know, don't do it at the expense of relationships. Uh, you know, as much as possible, try to find some balance so that if there's an 80 hour week, maybe you can spend a bit of time building those relationships because study after study shows that ultimately what matters to sort of life satisfaction and happiness is, is the quality of your relationships. A hundred percent. And and it's interesting. I, I, someone, I read this piece of advice where they said, investing time in fostering or maintaining and building relationships is a form of self-care. And a lot of the times people don't, I think, think about that. They, they, um, they cut time for relationships, for work, for, uh, for other uh, things. And they often neglect relationships. And it's interesting that Clayton Christensen book, he talks so much about that. It's like being intentional and really carving out time for fostering and maintaining relationships. And I find that some of the people who I know uh, in my life who are often like the happiest are people who are like super intentional at like, oh, I'm going to call, even I think of my grandmother who's 90, who is luckily very um, uh, healthy. Uh, she, during the pandemic, had this like big list of like 50 people. And every day she was like, oh, I'm going to call a different person on this list. And it was a way that she made, and she maintains tons of relationships with like people she know from like 60 years ago. Uh, and uh, I, personally, she's been a great kind of role model uh, for, for me in, in that way. And I think in some ways of that kind of the greatest generation, like the, the or the great, I think that that's the term for the, the people who were born in like the 1930s, there was a huge emphasis, I think, on relationships as part of their life. And I think sometimes amongst young, younger people, um, it has at times been deprioritized, although I think the pandemic has been, uh, to your point, it's highlighted for, to many people about how so much of life's happiness is tied to, to, to relations. Andrew, it has been a true pleasure uh, speaking with you today. We've covered a really wide range of topics. Congrats on the tremendous success of Borowell. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you uh, so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.